You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Let me go ahead and pray for us as we transition this morning. Father in heaven, God, we are, God, we are a thankful people. God, the beauty of this, the words that we have just sung, that God, even though our sin is great, that your mercy is even greater. God, as we come before you, as we open your word, as we study what it has to say, God, may we hear from you this morning about who you are and how we are to respond to your great faithful love. God, we give you praise this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Normally we start with the reading of the text before we come up to preach. We're going to change that up just slightly, and I hope that it will make sense why in just a little bit. So as we start, I want to start with a little bit of a thought experiment. And that thought experiment is like this. I'm going to ask you some questions to remember some events in your life. Now, not all of them will necessarily pertain to you, and that's okay. But you'll get the idea of what we're doing here. So, as, as you're thinking through this, I've been thinking through all week uh, and leading up to this, how many of you, if you have children, especially if they're over the age of three, how many of you can actually remember in great detail the first steps of your firstborn child? In all vivid detail. Or how about the best vacation you ever took? Think about the best vacation you ever took. I mean, I'm sure you can recount some amazing things about that. Or maybe the greatest date you ever went on, or if you're married, your wedding day. Think about that. Or the first time you drove a car, maybe you really looked forward to that. I've talked to some people that didn't look forward to that. That makes no sense to me. I wanted to drive since I was like four. So when I got my license, man, I can remember so much of that day. Or, or, or really pick any other special event or occasion in your life. Or how about something, if you're a Christian, even more important, the day that you surrendered to Christ and placed saving faith in Him. Now, if we're really honest, how much of those events do you really know in great detail? Because I'm thinking in my own life that, that, that I've got glimpses for sure of those events. I can remember them opening the door of the, the, the sanctuary where we got married and, and seeing Megan come down the aisle but if I'm very honest, I've only got snippets, pictures in my brain of that day. As someone, as I see a picture or someone reminds me, of course, I, I remember some more details. And, and maybe some of you are wired differently than me. I know that Megan recounts way more detail than I do. I'm more of a general idea kind of guy. Uh, she'll remember what you were wearing and what you said exactly. I'm like, the general thought was this. But my guess is many of you may have glimpses of these events. But if I ask you to recount every minute or every single thing that happened, even some of the important things, my guess is we would have forgotten about some of those. Maybe they're back there. Maybe they would be reminded of us some other time we see a picture or somebody says something. But right now, we only have glimpses. And I think the reality of that is because we are, I think, a forgetful people. And so, as I'm thinking about that this week, and why God calls us to remember so much, I was debating with myself, driving in the car, I was the only one in the car, 
And I was debating with myself with why we're a forgetful people. Are we forgetful, but as a result of the fall, like our sin against God that has brought curses upon us and our, and our land, are we, are we forgetful because of the result of the fall, or are we forgetful because God's made us finite? Now we know, for instance, our sickness, our broken relationships, death, even some of the terrible weather that we've experienced, we know that those are results of the brokenness of our world and the fall, but our forgetfulness? I was debating with myself back and forth, which you would think would give me a better opportunity to win an argument, but to be honest, I still lost because what I came out to is, I don't know. I can see very clearly that God has made us finite. I know that when we were younger, often we were told, hey, any question you may have when you get to heaven, it'll be answered. And I think there's some truth to that, by the way. I think that we're going, to get to, we're going to get to discover who God is and who we are and all of that. But that doesn't mean that when we get to heaven immediately, we're going to be omniscient like God is omniscient. I think that's why we're never going to get bored in the new creation. I think that we're always going to be constantly learning or maybe relearning all the beauty and the character of who God is. And so I think our finiteness is on purpose to keep us attached into worshiping our God. But whatever the case, whether it's result of the fall or whether it's our finiteness, I'm not sure it overly matters. The solution to our forgetfulness is the same. And that is we are to actively remember, purposely remember who God is and what He's done. And I say it on purpose. We're not to be passive in our remembering. And, and there's lots of examples of God telling His people in the Old Testament to remember. In fact, one story is in Joshua 4. The people of God are crossing the Jordan River. God has, has used a great wind to hold back the waters of the Jordan. And they are crossing through. And Joshua tells 12 men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, to go into the middle where the people were holding the Ark of the Covenant, to grab these giant stones and to carry them to the other side. And then when, made, when they made camp that night, they built an altar. So that whenever generations of people would walk back by that and they would say, what are those stones for? You could tell and remember for yourself and tell future generations, this is what the Lord did here. And we see it all throughout that we are called to intentionally remember what the Lord has done. And as we think about this in 2022, we live in a data-driven, look-for-what's-next kind of world, don't we? The information age has brought us all kinds of fresh ideas and new content and up-to-the-minute data. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and all the other ones, they spend millions of dollars a year writing and tweaking their algorithms that keep you clicking on what's next. And yet we move so fast from one thing to the next that I wonder how often we actually pause and take in and understand and think about what it is that we are ingesting. And yet, the more studies that are done, what are we getting from all of this unprecedented access to newness or novelty that's being brought to us? Well, all indications are that we are, we're not becoming wiser and more mature, we're becoming shallower and not really knowing all that much. Running our eyes across the page or mouthing words to a song is not the same thing as experiencing the reality of it in our hearts. Our hearts simply don't move as fast as our eyes and our mouths do. And so God calls us to slow down so that the things that matter can seep deep down into our souls. 
we're in this setting, so let me give an example of what that means for us here. Your leadership team here tries to balance what does it look like, and let's pick music because it's everybody, everybody's favorite subject. When I was growing up, we, <clears throat> for a while, we only sang out of the hymnal. And when I was young, I didn't know any better, and then I got to be a teenager, and contemporary Christian music was becoming much more prevalent. And all of a sudden, as a teenager, in all of our wisdom of our teenage years, I thought that all the old people that wanted to only sing out of the hymnals were boring, and why in the world would you not want this cool new stuff? Well, let me say a word or two about that. One, I think new songs can be a very good and helpful thing. I think that they can expand our expression of declaration of praise to the Lord, absolutely. But the temptation to always be looking for what's new means that none of them are actually having the time to get down deep in our hearts. I was at a funeral uh, a few years ago, and they sang a hymn without any hymnals uh, at this funeral, and it was amazing. I hadn't sung that hymn in 15 years easily. And almost every word, even like, you know, the fourth verse, even the third one that sometimes our music minister would skip, uh, I still knew most every one of those words. So there's a balance between doing something over and over again so that the truth of it seeps down deep in our soul while also balancing that with, with future and great expressions and new expressions of declaration of praise to our God. But if we're not careful, we can think that the thing that is older, the thing that we've done a bunch of times, is boring. We can think that it doesn't have any place for us. But part of the reason we gather week in and week out like this it's because while we live in a world that is always for what is new and next, we need to be reminded week in and week out of the truth of the gospel. And we can say we'll do it on our own, but the reality is we need to come in here together to encourage one another together, to hear God's word taught, to sing the deep praises of our God together. I think it's because while we only like to think of ourselves as always forward thinking, I think the reality is God has made us and called us to be a meditating people. Now, the moment I say the word meditate, depending on where you're from and what your background is, you may immediately run to some non-Christian form of meditation, which is this idea that if I can sit quietly and I can empty my mind and I can transcend concrete uh, specifics into the ethereal, the ethereal, then experience some form of meaningless enlightenment or, or some kind of focus. And so that's what we think of when we think of the word meditate. But the Bible talks and calls Christians to meditate on God's law. And, God, and Christian meditation is not an emptying of the mind, but a filling up of our mind with biblical truth. So much so that you're chewing on it, that you're savoring every bite. But in our constant activity culture, and I say this as someone who's been convicted while looking and studying this passage, Christian meditation is becoming a lost art. See, unlike mere reading, even, even if we tell ourselves to slow down in our reading, reading inherently is linear. I'm moving from one word to the next, or one sentence to the next, or one thought to the next, and we're moving along even in slow reading. Meditation isn't linear. It's more like a spiral. Re reading keeps us marching forward. A meditation makes us slow down. It limits the information set, and then we just circle it over and over and over again so that it has time to bore down deep into our souls so that our minds don't just race to the very next thing. Now that is a very long introduction to our text this morning. I'm aware of that and out of our norm. 
But I think as you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 136, Psalm 136, it's also on page 546 in those little Bibles in front of you. I hope you'll understand why. Because this psalm encourages us to slow down and to focus not on the verses, but on the chorus that is repeated over and over again. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to read the entire thing. And you can either follow along in your Bibles or you can listen as I read it. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His faithful love endures forever. He alone does great wonders. His faithful love endures forever. He made the heavens skillfully. His faithful love endures forever. He spread the land on the waters. His faithful love endures forever. He made the great lights. His faithful love endures forever. The sun to rule by day. His faithful love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule by night. His faithful love endures forever. He struck the firstborn of the Egyptians. His faithful love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them. His faithful love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. His faithful love endures forever. He divided the Red Sea. His faithful love endures forever. And led Israel through. His faithful love endures forever. But hurled Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. His faithful love endures forever. He led his people in the wilderness. His faithful love endures forever. He struck down great kings. His faithful love endures forever. And he slaughtered famous kings. His faithful love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, his faithful love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, his faithful love endures forever. And gave their land as an inheritance. His faithful love endures forever. An inheritance to Israel, his servant. His faithful love endures forever. He remembered us in our humiliation. His faithful love endures forever. And he rescued us from our foes. His faithful love endures forever. He gives food to every creature. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven his faithful love endures forever. Now, I think we'll agree on the surface that that's a beautiful song. But let me ask a question, and you don't have to raise a hand. How many of you, by the time we got to about verse 6, were kind of just kind of ready to skip over the refrain and just get on to the next verse? And just so in case that was you, don't feel bad, when I first read this a couple weeks ago, starting to think through this text, by about verse 6, in my mind, I was going, He spread the land on the waters. Faithful love and forever. He made the great lights, ditto. To the sun to rule by day, yeah, yeah. And the moon and the stars to rule by night. Because I wanted to get to, you know, the, the more meatier section of the psalm, right? I wanted the new information. The only problem is, I was actually missing the main thrust of this psalm. See, I was actually bored initially with this psalm. 
instead of having the truth of its main idea be bored down deep into my soul. So church, we're going to work through this passage like we always do. But I don't want you to fall into the same trap that I did. Instead, as we look at these other pieces that give context, that give beauty to the refrain of His faithful love endures forever, let's make sure that's the thing that we are consumed with. God's overwhelming, glorious truth of His character. As we do each week, we, uh, we try to give you in the same uh, practice of meditation, that is uh, one thing that we come back around and around to, we try every week to put a slide on the screen that has the main idea. That if we could boil it down to one main idea and then hopefully hit that from multiple directions. And that's why we split the text up as we do at times. And so this week, as we, as we mimic that, as we talk through that, our main idea from this Psalm 136 is that God's character and His acts in human history should result in praise of His everlasting, faithful love. And then like we also do is we give you our main action or our main takeaway, which for us is to meditate and to praise God for who He is and for what He has done. So often we, we give you that and then we give you subpoints to that main idea. Today on the screen, I'm just going to give you the outline as opposed to subpoints because there are no subpoints. This psalm is just going to hit over and over again that God's faithful love endures forever. So in the first three verses, we see this call to praise. The psalmist begins by saying, give thanks to the Lord. The idea of giving thanks is an imperative. It means to praise or to confess. And I know at times we think about it in terms of, of, of a movie or something like that where someone's confessing to a crime. This is a positive confession. It's why if you go in our foyer, you're going to see our marks of maturity. The first one is to confess the truth of the gospel. This is a verbal outward expression of who God is and what He has done. And so we are to give thanks to the Lord. Many psalms, as we've looked at already, as we'll continue to look at, there's a specific occasion for which they're being written. Something has happened or the Lord has intervened in a specific way. And so the psalmist is writing in relation to that. This one is not that. This is simply a declarative praise psalm that's called the Great Hallel by many, which means the Great Psalm of Praise. It is just simply retelling of the wonder of who God is and His amazing love. And so the refrain every time, the word behind faithful love, or maybe your version has steadfast love, it's this Hebrew word chesed, and it just means, and it's a beautiful word that to be honest, I could not begin to try to describe all that it means with one or two English words. But it's one of probably the most beautiful words in the entire Old Testament. It, it, there's nothing that can fully encapsulate that word in our English language. So sometimes it's been translated loving kindness, or faithful love, or loyal love, or sometimes mercy, and sometimes kindness. And all of it getting to this steadfast, this never-ending love of God that, that, that is part of His character and it influences how He acts. It carries with it the entire weight of God's covenant-fulfilling, promise-keeping love that flows from His character into every action of God that fulfills His promise in creation to make a people for Himself and He would be their God. And so the psalmist says in verse 1, Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. 
Now, we live in a world that loves superlatives. And so when we read that God is good, it can be like, well, that's nice. I mean, he could have said God's awesome, God's amazing, God's in, you know, incredible, and he said he's good. But don't fall into that trap because goodness in the Bible is talking to its purity. God is good in that he is perfect, he is pure, he is set apart, he is not like us in our sinful state. So God is good because he is perfect. In verses 2 and 3, you say we're praising the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Now, this isn't a, a statement to somehow uh, suggest polytheism as if there are actually multiple gods. It's a way of, of building up, like the Holy of Holies or a Song of Songs. It's the, the finest of the, of the set. And so God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords because any other thing someone could think is a God is not even a true God. Psalm 135, and your Bible is just one psalm before this. In verse 16, speaking of these kind of idols, the psalmist says, They have mouths but can't speak. They have eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Indeed, there is no breath in their mouths. In other words, God is a God of God and a Lord of Lords because there's not anything even close to Him. And anything that would appear as such would be nothing. So we praise God because there are no other powers. There are no other beings above Him. He is worthy of our praise. So that's the call to praise. And now we come to the cause of praise. So we move from the character of who God is to His actions in human redemptive history. So the psalmist is going to show us as God as creator, God as deliverer, sustainer, and provider. And so we see in verses 4 through 9, God's acts in creation. And it says, He alone does great wonders. He does miracles. He does wonderful works that evoke all in people. Now look, right now, uh, many of you know that I'm not so much into this, but I know that it, superhero, Marvel, DC, I can't even keep them all straight, those movies and comics are huge right now and have been for a while. And, and, and not just now, but if we go back in antiquity, there have been almost for all of human history writings of these, of these amazing acts of, of things that are either superpowered or alien or, or demigod type personalities. And I think some of the drive and the craze over these types of stories is because we recognize ultimately how small, how weak we really are. And so it's amazing to us to think up that there is someone or something that could do something that could do even our wildest imaginations where only we could dream it up. And yet the acts of God are even far beyond that. Beyond the most mind-blowing superhero powers, our God is greater. Because our God in creation took nothing and made everything. Or at best, the superheroes that we study or look at or read or watch a movie of, they're taking something that's already there and they're doing something with it. God made the something that wasn't even there and then he did a whole lot with it. And so we praise the God alone who does great wonders. It says in verse 5 that he made the heavens skillfully. Proverbs 3, The Lord founded the earth by wisdom and established the heavens by understanding. By his knowledge, the watery depths broke open. And the clouds dripped with dew. Echoing that same assertion, verse 5 says that the Lord, by His understanding, made the heavens. Rather than coming to existence by time and by chance, as is alleged by naturalism, the world was a result of the conscious, intelligent activity of its Creator. 
our physical creation that we see is not by accident. It's not arbitrary, but it has meaning and it has order that's been built into its structures. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 19 can say the heavens declare the glory of the God. That's why in Romans 1 we know that we're all accountable because we can look and we can see in God's creation that there must have been a creator. The theme of God as creator continues in verses 6-9 through as a poetic retelling of God creating an inhabitable world for His people. From Genesis 17 to Exodus 6, from Ezra to, I'm sorry, from Ezekiel to Jeremiah, God made clear that it was His plan in the very beginning that He would make a people that would be for Him and He would be their God. And so we praise God because He set out in the very beginning to create a people and a world that His faithful people would be on display and that His love would be on display for all to see. In verses 10 through 15, we see God's acts in Israel's deliverance. If you know the story that the people of God at some point had rebelled and then were in captivity in Egypt for almost 400 years. And so the psalmist moves now from God's acts of creation into his role as deliverer. But as I said earlier, I don't want you to lose sight. Like, let's not get so caught up in the, the first part of the verse that we miss the refrain. Yes, the Lord delivered his people, but let me tell you, that's the occasion. That's not the focus. The main thrust is we are to praise God for His faithful, covenant-keeping love. Yes, God made a covenant with Abraham to have a people that He would love, care, protect, and save. God's salvific act in rescuing His people who had been enslaved, and by the way, rightly, because they had rebelled, but God's act of rescuing His people isn't so much about Israel, but about the God and His faithfulness to his own covenant. Which gives us hope. Because God and his faithful love endures forever. It means that when mankind, when you and I act foolishly, when we act arrogantly towards God, he continues to act according to who he is. Which is a steadfast, promise-keeping God. God's faithful love towards Israel was so clear in the final of those ten plagues in Egypt. When God told His people to sacrifice the lamb and take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost, and that at midnight when He came and He was going to kill the firstborn of all creation in Egypt, but anybody that had the blood of a lamb, He would pass over that house so that no harm would happen to that house. But it's really easy, I think, at times, maybe not when we know the rest of the story, but in our own lives, to see God, yes, as a deliverer from when something has happened bad, but then it's kind of like, okay, I got you out of that. You're on your own. But God's not like that. Because the Egyptian army came after God's people, and they came up to this Red Sea with no way to cross it. God parted the waters of that Red Sea. So much so that the land was dry and they could walk straight through. And then when Pharaoh and his armies got to the middle of it, God brought the waters back and everyone who had chased after God's people were destroyed. God's faithfulness wasn't just evident in their initial rebellion and in saving them, but also in the face of a mighty force of Egyptian army. But look, he's the God of gods and he's the Lord of lords. And so there's no mighty earthly army that can even begin to match his power. Look, I don't know where you are today, all of you. You may feel like you are facing a mighty force. You may feel like there is all so much going on around you that it is overwhelming. 
But just like he was when the psalmist wrote this, he is today. He is the Lord. The Lord is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. And nothing is mightier than he is. And if he was delivering his people back then, he delivers his people today. And so we praise God for his deliverance. Verse 16 to 22, we see that God's acts in Israel's inheritance. See, what I love about the way that this, uh, the psalm is, is the way it is, is telling not only a story of God's wonderful actions in, in Israel's history, but it's building. It's building in what, uh, of what we're called to praise, of God's steadfast, never-ending love. Not only did God make a world for his people to inhabit, and even after their rebellion, he still delivered them, but it doesn't stop there. He continued to provide for them throughout their wanderings in the desert. And by the way, their wanderings in the desert were extended because of their unfaithfulness. And yet God in His faithfulness continues to lead them to victories along the way. Now you may not be overly familiar with the two kings that are mentioned in verses 19 and 20. You would have to go back and look at Numbers 21 and see this story of as the people are moving through, they're on their way to the promised land. You got to think, these are people that have been in captivity for almost 400 years. They have no military training. They don't know what they're doing. They're just a group of people that have been sent out, and God is taking them, and He is giving them victory after victory after victory, preparing them for when the big, big, the big battles are coming in the promised land. And so, even in their rebellion, our God is remaining faithful. And so, His love isn't just on display. For one moment when we needed to be delivered, God's faithful love is on display in all the moments of your life. God made a promise to Abraham. And in this psalm, we're retelling God's amazing acts as he is fulfilling that promise. Remember, he made a promise to Abraham, but he made Abraham go to sleep. So when God walked through, he took on the full weight of that covenant for himself, knowing that we would fail over and over and over again, but that God would remain Verses 23 through 25, there's a sharp but skillful transition in the psalm. When we see not only God's acts in Israel's past, but even in its present. Because the psalmist doesn't want us to only be looking back to what God had done, but even in the present that he is still faithful in his love. And that's where we join this story. Because while in its historical context, the writer was writing in his context, we, by reading this psalm, are joining in that he remembered us in our humiliation or lowly estate, depending on your translation. God wasn't simply faithful back then, whatever back then is, but that he's faithful and his love endures even now, just as we read over and over and over again. Look, the book of Psalms is broken into five sub-books, if you will. And Psalm 136 is situated in book 5 of the psalm. And book 5 is describing and detailing God's plan of redemption, not through David, but through a new David, the Savior that was to come. In fact, if you were to read Psalm 110, Psalm 118, you would see that this Savior has already been introduced. And so when we read that He, he remembered us in our humiliation, why our humiliation? Because in our sin, we are separated from God. God's great wonders of the past are great, but His faithful help in the present is even more beautiful for you. Because you see what He already did in the past, and you're encouraged that it is continuing to happen and will continue for all of eternity. 
And then it says that he rescued us from our foes. Although the historical context for that, these people were most likely on the other side of exile. Think Ezra, think Nehemiah. But as we're encouraged to be a part of this, then our rescue from our greatest foe wasn't some army, wasn't Pharaoh, wasn't some great king, but it was sin and its leader, Satan. So not only did the Lord deliver His people from Pharaoh and His great army of the day, but He has delivered us from a more everlasting deliverance from a much mightier and more invasive foe. And see, church, this is where the beauty of God's steadfast love comes to a climax in the song. You and I are included in this song because we are included in God's rescue plan. He wasn't just a God who saved back then, but He's a God who saves even now, which is why we prayed earlier that He would save many of the children that were here because we believe He's a God who rescues His people. Jesus, God's own Son, was God's plan all along that He would come and reconcile God's people to Himself. God told Abraham, that all of the world would ultimately be included in God's family. The people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Jesus, born of a woman, yet fully God, is God's plan A for salvation, to fulfill God's plan. God started in the beginning to say, I'm going to make a people for myself and I'll be their God. And Jesus came to fulfill that so that you and I could be a part of that family. And then the psalmist concludes his praise by extolling the Lord who gives food to every creature. Just as he gave land to Israel, so he continually gives food to all of his creation. Because the idea here, as it is so often in the Bible, God's, God's sovereignty, God's leadership isn't located just with a small group of people, but over everything. And so the Lord's hesed extends not just to Israel, but to not even to all humans, but to all of his creation that he cares about. Because he made all of it. What God was doing in Genesis 12 what he told Abraham that from his seed would be a great nation ultimately was part of a much larger plan to rescue the entire world. Thus, the Lord's work throughout history, throughout the history of Israel, is linked with his gracious design for the entire world. So it's no wonder why the psalmist finishes in verse 26 by saying, Give thanks to the God of heaven. His faithful love endures forever. The psalm concludes where it began. Only this time, it designates God as the God of heaven. The God in covenantal relationship with Israel is truly the God who is the God over all of creation. The God who inhabits heaven is also the God who is involved with His creation. Psalm 113 says, Who is like the Lord our God, the one enthroned in heaven up high, and who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the trash heap in order to seat them with the nobles. He gives the childless woman a household, making her, joyful, making her a joyful mother of the children. Hallelujah. The God of heaven is a God who is transcendent. But he doesn't stay only transcendent because he condescended down to our lowly estate to the point where he even sent his own son into this world taking on the form of a servant even to the point in which he was killed on a cross so that you and so that I could be made right with that God. So verses 1 through 3 talk about this amazing transcendent God and then we see the, how he has acted in human history. In spite of our state that he has made us to be able to worship him because of his faithful love that endures forever.
as we finish today, look, let me be really honest. It's been an interesting week for us here at Covenant Hope, and a good week. But there's been a lot of emotions all over the place. We already shared earlier that Pastor Cody and Ashley had their second baby boy born healthy on Friday. Man, that's awesome. But just earlier in the week, we have a, a, a member whose, whose granddaughter had a life-threatening near-death experience that's going to require ongoing work and surgery. And we're thankful for what happened, but the immense scares, the, 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 the being terrified and scared of what was going to happen was also very real. But then on the other side, we had a church full of kids that we got to share the gospel with and sing crazy songs and hopefully get to love on them so they see the gospel. But then right on the other side, we had another member that had surgery this week to take care of a, of a bone infection that's been ongoing. And then I'm sure there's so much more in here that I don't know about. But if all we have to depend on our lives are these rolling hills of emotions, life's going to be overwhelming. It's going to be tiring. It's going to be depressing. Yet being pulled to and fro is not how God called us to live. If you're on a boat, uh, to keep it from being taken... Uh, wherever the wind and the waves may drive, then anchor is dropped to the ocean floor. Now once the anchor is dropped, does that mean that, 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 that the boat won't rise and fall with the waves anymore? No, it doesn't mean that. Does it mean that it's not going to be affected by the harsh winds? No, it's still going to be. But once the rising waves have passed, and once the wind dies down, the boat is still going to be right where the captain intended for it to be. The captain of our life has given us an anchor as well. It doesn't mean we won't experience the highs and the lows of this life and this broken world. We will. It doesn't mean that the waves of this life won't at times appear to be overwhelming because they will. But it does mean that God's steadfast, faithful, promise-keeping love endures even in the midst of whatever you may be walking through. And nothing in your life can change that reality. God's faithful love is everlasting. That's the anchor for you and for me in this life. The challenge for us isn't whether or not that's true. The challenge for us is that we way too often fail to slow down long enough to focus our hearts and our minds on this reality. As we started this summer in the Psalm series, Pastor Cody taught from Psalm 1 a few weeks back. And we said in verse 2 of that psalm, that the ones blessed by God would be the ones that meditate on God's law daily. It's the ones that would spend time knowing Him, not just intellectually, not just knowing information about this God, but would experience His goodness, would seek to understand His character, and study His Word to know how they ought to respond. Church, may we be a people who slow down. And may we focus on who God really is and let the beauty and the redemption of His providence in our lives wash over us. Let it seek way down deep into our souls so that our lives, so that we will live lives that are impacted by His faithful love. Let me pray. Father, this morning, God, we thank You that we can come here that with all the stuff that has been going on this week, some of it amazing, some of it terrifying, and then a whole lot of stuff in between. God, it's not that those things aren't 
important because we know that they are. But God, we thank you that you've given us a text like Psalm 136, that while we are tempted to skip over and to get through it as quickly as we can, that God, you've called us through it to slow down. And while this psalm doesn't talk about every aspect of your character, it talks about one beautiful piece of it. And God, may we be drilled down into us today that you're a God whose faithful love endures forever. And because your faithful love endures forever, it matters in our lives. As we face the ups and downs, as we face the trials, as we face whatever it is that's coming next, God, that we remember your salvific acts in the past. We remember what you did on the cross with Jesus. And we remember that you are coming back for your people so we may have life forevermore. God, we thank you because we know all of that is because you are a God whose faithful love endures forever. God, we give you praise today in the name of Jesus. Amen.